as we've said throughout this series, we've kind of um, revealed our point, and that's this, is that Jesus has come into the world to introduce something brand new. Not to introduce something or to continue something, not to complete a book. Uh, He came into the world to bring about something completely brand new. This wasn't religion 2.0. This was something entirely brand new, and he was bringing it to the world and for the world. And we say these words, and often as we've said them, I think we've just heard them and kind of glossed by them. But today we're really going to unpack what is, what is so significant about it being to the world and being for the world. The amazing thing about this, and this is completely indisputable, you can kind of look this up, and I think this is actually really incredible, is that these ragtag group of guys, these, these men that started to follow Jesus, they, they did all of this incredible thing, they, they started this church, they continued this work with no territory, with no military, that's hard to say that. I screwed that up even last night. No territory, no military, and no sacred text. That they had the audacity to announce to the entire world that the final sacrifice for sin had taken place. That it was no longer about sacrificing animals continually as you made mistakes, but the final sacrifice for sin for every person in the world, for every single generation had taken place. This like stood in the face of their religion of Judaism. It stood in the face of, of Roman religions and Greek religions. This was something completely brand new. And it was being introduced to the world through a man named Jesus. And the disciples would face this question time and time again, and really it's a question they had an answer to, and that's, hey, who died and left you in charge? It's something they'd have to continually face. And what's really interesting about this story is that about 347 years later, about 347 years later, in A.D. 380, Emperor Theodius I, through the Edict of Thessalonica, declared Christianity the religion of the empire. That, that just 340, about 350 years after Jesus walked the earth, after that very empire set out to crush his movement, after that empire crucified him, that empire makes his movement the religion of an entire empire. How? I mean, that's just unimaginable, isn't it? That's unimaginable that the very people that set out to crush him just a few years later would exalt him as the religion of an empire. And it's not just unimaginable to us. I imagine it would be incredibly unimaginable to John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist who started out with him? He's out in like hip deep water, baptizing people. And one day he looks up and Jesus is on the shore. And he kind of introduces Jesus to the world like, Hey, everybody, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And sure enough, over time, didn't take much time, but over time, pagan temples would be ripped down in the name of Christianity. Pagan temples would be repurposed for Christian worship and Christian practices. And ultimately, pagan worship in the Roman Empire was outlawed. All because of a group of men, a group of ragtag nobodies, came together, followed Jesus, and changed the world. And their message reached all the way around the world and lasts for thousands and thousands of years. And here we are today. I mean, to me, that's unimaginable. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Previously on 90, here's what happened. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus was then tempted out in the wilderness by the the devil. Then he gathered some followers. He met Peter, James, John, and Andrew. The text tells us that after Jesus gathered these followers, that news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. But they were praising him because they thought he was this radical teacher. They were praising him because they thought he was this, this new rabbi with this new message. And it was, it was really interesting and edgy. It kind of walked the line. And he said things they never heard. They were praising him as this, this continued prophet. Not that somebody who came to, to, to kind of bookend what was and introduce something brand new. But as this 
continuation of what was. The text actually tells us this, that they thought of Jesus as a great prophet had appeared among us. They said God had come to help who? His people. That this was just a continuation of what was. This is just for us. That God was continuing to do what he had always done for the Jews. This thing, that this, this new person, this prophet was for us. It's simply a continuation of what was. This wasn't something new. They didn't even understand exactly what was going on. But as we're going to see this morning, all throughout Jesus' life, he begins to drop these breadcrumbs, these hints that he had come to do something brand new, that this wasn't a continuation. That there were these, these parables and these teachings, and he spoke almost in riddles, and people didn't understand. But, but looking back as, as 21st century readers, we can see that these are breadcrumbs and hints, that something brand new was right around the corner, that, that he was introducing something that would completely change the world forever, even though they couldn't see it. He was introducing something brand new. Which brings us to where we're going to be today, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous message Jesus ever gave, and, and Jesus didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, somebody gave it the title Sermon on the Mount because Jesus spoke this message, believe it or not, on a mount, on a mountain. It kind of makes sense, right? Do you guys need some coffee? You got to roll with me this morning. <clears throat> Jesus preached this message, the Sermon on the Mount, and here's why we believe Jesus didn't give this title. This is my Sermon on the Mount message. This is it. Because a lot of New Testament theologians and a lot of, of theologians believe that this is the same message Jesus would give over and over and over and over throughout his life. That this wasn't a one-time occurrence. This was something Jesus would continually preach. It was like, it was his message. If you have one thing that you're going to communicate through your life, this is the one thing Jesus would communicate throughout his life. He would constantly come back and constantly teach this stuff over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, if you take uh, all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and you like, put that in chronological order, that only fills about six to eight months except for all the Passovers. So there's not a lot that's given to us about the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, John, the gospel writer, he actually says that this is just, we're just like skimming the surface here. That if we were to write everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus taught in his lives, there would be so much information, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to contain all the books we'd have to write. Now we know that's hyperbole, but you get the point. John's saying we're just skimming the surface of what Jesus did and what he taught and, and what he showed us. We're just, we're just touching the surface of this incredible man and what he had come to introduce. So people believe, and scholars believe, that the content of this message, this Sermon on the Mount, was something that Jesus would go to over and over and over again. This was his life. This was, this was the very thing he came to introduce. And this incredible message that he came to introduce, it was, so, it was so new world thinking. This wasn't old kingdom of the world's worldview. This was the new. This was the upside down. This was the backwards. This was the very reason he came. And when we get into this message, we're going to see why it was so tough. As, as, as 21st century readers, when we look through our English Bibles and we read it, we kind of gloss over because looking back, it's like, yeah, of course. <clears throat> but for these people, for first century people who were hearing this message, it was so radical. It, it, it caused torment. It caused grief. It caused separation. So as we kind of read this, I'm going to read through it with you. I, I, my hope in this is, is to... It's to kind of contrast it and to show you, to, to extrapolate those feelings that these people, these first century people were feeling and how it stood in the face of everything they had taught since they were children. Jesus starts off this way. This is in Luke 6. He said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Which they don't, in this century, they didn't agree with that at all. They've been taught their whole life that blessed are the rich. That if you're rich, that God loves you. If you're rich and, and you're blessed financially, then God's blessing is on you. The, the poor aren't blessed. The poor are cursed. Jesus, what do you mean blessed are the poor? And no one liked this except the poor. The poor were finally excited. Finally, we're remembered. Finally, someone thought of us. 
Blessed are the poor, he says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or in another translation, it says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The good news is, hey, that even if you're poor, you'll see the kingdom of God. You'll experience the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, this wasn't what I was taught growing up. That's not what my mom taught me. That's not what my rabbi, what my teacher taught me. I thought it was blessed are the rich. And Jesus would just make these kind of statements that were complete opposition of what they believed. He, he goes on. He says this. He would say, the meek would inherit. The merciful would be blessed. The peacemakers, not the power brokers, were in God's favor. And then he said this, and this is one of my favorite ones. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. And think about this. For they shall see God. And they didn't get this because to them it wasn't blessed the pure in heart. It, 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 was, it was the people who were ceremonially clean. It wasn't about what happened on the inside. Blessed are the people who, who you know, washed their hands and didn't talk to Gentiles and stay out of Gentile homes and did all the ceremonial washings and cleanings and, and they never touched dead things. Those were the people who were blessed. He said, no, 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 no. That's how it was. But things are changing. I'm introducing something brand new. No, no longer is it about what happens on the outside. He said, I'm looking at the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the activity. They shall know that God is at work. And then they blew their minds, and he said this. He said, you, and he's talking to the, his Jewish audience, you Jewish people, you people who have decided to follow me, all of you Jews, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. To which they thought, wait a minute, <clears throat> we're not salt to the earth. We don't like the earth. Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but, but we built walls to keep them out. It's about us. We don't want to be salt to the world. We want it to be about us. It's about the Jewish people. This doesn't sound very messianic, Jesus. This, this doesn't sound like, like Moses. We, want, we don't want to be salt to the world. We want it to be about us. We want, we want the blessing of God to fall on our people. We want to be the nation that's feared. You know, when, when David was the warrior king, we want to be the nation that's remembered as this, this extravagantly wealthy nation when Solomon was the king. Jesus, th this is what we want. And you're telling us we're going to be salt to the, to the world, to the people we don't like, to the Gentiles, to, to everyone else? I mean, we were hoping in a Messiah because we thought the Messiah was going to come and, and, and it was going to be about us, about the Jews. And you're telling us it's about the rest of the world. Jesus just kept going, walked right by all their arguments. In the same way, he, he would say, let your light or your life shine before others. And they knew what this meant. They knew that this meant all the non-Jewish people. They go, wait a minute, let our light shine before the non-Jewish people? We don't even like them, Jesus. Why would our light, why would our life, why would we shine it to them for them to see? We don't like them. We're hoping you're here to get rid of them and expel them from us. To take our nation back. Jesus, again, just keeps on going. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And they're thinking to themselves, we don't like this at all. Jesus, you're pretty cool. Like, you're this new guy, you're this new teacher, you're young, you're hip, you're edgy, you're, you're, you're the new thing in town. But what you're saying, man, it's just, it, it, I just can't wrap my head around. It is in complete contrast to everything I've been taught. It's not about them, it's about us. And you're telling me, it's about me and what I do for them? It's all about them, it's about being in the world, it's about them honoring God, our Heavenly Father. He's my Heavenly Father, he's not theirs, Jesus. I don't want to do this. Jesus would keep going. It's almost like he can, he can imagine what they're thinking. The Bible says that Jesus knew the hearts of men. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what was going on. He knew the torment. 
So before they go away like feeling agitated, before they go, go away feeling completely separated from what he was trying to introduce and teach, he says this. He says, do not think. Don't assume. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And when he's, i got to stop here to explain what the law and the prophets are. Uh, during the first century <clears throat> and the preceding centuries, they didn't call what we would call the Old Testament the Old Testament because there was no old. It, it was the Testament. It was the covenant. It was, it was their scriptures, and they didn't call it the Bible. There was no Bible till hundreds of years later. They called their scriptures what we would call the Old Testament in our English Bibles. They called it the Law and the Prophets. That's what it was. It was, it was their Bible. It was their law. It was their word from God. There was no Old Covenant. Because there was no new covenant. It wasn't old. It was the current covenant. There was no Old Testament because testament meant covenant. And again, it's not old. It's current. This is what it is. This is their Bible. So Jesus is saying, I haven't come to abolish your Bible. I haven't come to expel your Bible. I haven't come to rewrite your Bible. I know. And then you have to ask yourself the question, why would he even say that? It's because everything he was saying leading up to this would cause them to think, you're here to abolish what we've been taught. You're here to basically spit on our Bible. You're undoing everything we've been taught, Jesus. And he said, I know that what I've said would make you think that, but that is not what I've come to do. I have not come to abolish your Bible. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to rewrite the law and the prophets, he would say. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to do something significant. I have come to introduce something old or something new. I've come to kind of capstone what was old and introduce something new. He said, I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Or in other words, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that if the law and the prophets, if the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, if they were an assignment, Jesus says, I'm here to complete it. If the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the Law and the Prophets, if they were a math problem, Jesus said, I've come to solve the problem. If, if the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the Law and the Prophets were a jet, Jesus said, I've come to land it and introduce to you something brand new. And not just for you, but to the world and for the entire world for the rest of time. The Law and the Prophets, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, they simply had an expiration date. And something was about to change. In fact, the Old Testament approach to life, the Old Testament way was going away. It was about to expire. He says, for truly I tell you, and I'm sure at this point in his message, every time he spoke this, after getting this far, the people are just so torn by what he's saying. When he gets to this place, I'm sure you could just hear a pin drop. Like, what's he going to say? For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen by any means will disappear from the law. And then you can imagine his Jewish audience would just like, like a sigh of relief. They'd sit back and smile like, okay, all right, we can roll with you, Jesus. And then after a little bit of a pause, Jesus would smile and say, until. She's, what do you mean until? Uh, until. That is, it's not going to disappear. I'm not here to edit it. I'm not here to change it. And I believe that, that, that this uh, until, this preposition is the most overlooked preposition in the entire New Testament. I feel like it's almost the, almost the overlooked word because none of us are taught what comes after this. 
None of us know. And the fact that you're here, the fact that maybe you had, you'd walked out on your faith because of something you had been taught earlier, the fact that maybe you weren't even taught this, and that's the reason your, your hand is on the door of faith and you're ready to exit it, it's because nobody took the time to introduce not just this preposition, but what follows this preposition, what this preposition in, includes. He's saying nothing is going to change about the law. Nothing is going to be removed from the law. Nothing is, is, is going to complete the law until, he says, until everything is accomplished until everything is in place, and then it will disappear, along with everything associated with it. And I know we read that and we just kind of gloss over, well, yeah, of course, we don't really understand what that means. That's unimaginable. It's unimaginable for us as we read it today, and it's unimaginable for this first century audience. Jesus, like, I understand you're good, you do these incredible things, you know, you've, you've healed people, you, you, you've rallied these disciples, you, you've done some incredible things, Jesus. But what you're telling us is that our whole approach to God, that our whole approach to faith is no good. What you're telling us is that this system that we've been raised in, that we've been practicing, that, we, that we've given our lives for, that our generations of parents have given their lives for, what you're saying is it's old and it's expiring. I'm not sure I can hang with you, Jesus. That sounds impossible. But 40 years later, 40 years later, August 6th, A.D. 70. Brian taught us this last week. 40 years later, at the hands of Titus and the, <clears throat> the Roman 10th Legion, ancient Judaism was completely put out of business. The temple was completely destroyed. Stones were physically removed from the temple just as Jesus predicted. And the Jewish temple system came to an end. Because you can't have a temple system without a temple. And the temple was never rebuilt so the very words of Jesus come to fruition. This old way, this old thing that you're doing, it's coming to an end. And I have come to introduce something brand new to you and to the rest of the world. You see, what's interesting about this, though, is that when this started, the, the, these Jews were still under the old covenant. That Jesus, when he was born, Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel. He was born under the new, and he was sent to bring about, or sorry, he was born under the old, and he was sent to bring about that which was new. He was born to obey the law that God gave to Israel through Moses, the Ten Commandments, the, the, those incredible laws. But Jesus said, I, I'm not just born under the law. I've come to fulfill it, to end it. And here's the good news, to replace it. And I say it's good news because how many of you want to spend the rest of your life trying to live out 600 and some odd commandments, being careful every day of what you do, and any time you make a mistake, offering a sacrifice and offering a sacrifice, never knowing your heavenly Father. Because this covenant wasn't made with God and a man. This old covenant was made with God and a nation. And this nation had to continually do everything they could to be clean, to, to, to try to know God. And this temple... It represented the very presence of God. And Jesus said, all of that was good, and all of that had a purpose. All of that was there to show you the need for what would come. But that's being concluded. That's being closed. And I'm introducing something brand new for you. And all of his teachings and all of his parables, they were all foreshadowings. Saying, here it comes. Get ready. Here it comes. Changes in the wind. I'm not going to add to it. I'm not going to take away from it. I'm going to complete it, and I'm going to bring it to a close. And I'm going to introduce something brand new to the world and for the world. 
and the early church, when I say the early church, I'm talking like the first century church, about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, they would struggle with this. They would struggle with the separation. They would struggle with the completeness of it. Well, well is, it, is it really? Do I have to really? Is, is it complete separation? And it wasn't just the first century church. The 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th, the 21st century church still struggles. And I'm not throwing stones because I'm part of them. I was raised this way. I understand the conflict. We still don't understand the complete separation. When Jesus said, it is completely done, it is brought to an end, and I bring something brand new for you. Now, if there is any question in Jesus' Jewish audience at this point, that he had really come to contrast himself, to pitch himself <clears throat> kind of against what came before him. <coughs> this made abundantly clear that they were not hearing things, that they weren't misunderstanding his words. Jesus would say this. And he says this, this incredible phrase about six times throughout Matthew. He says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, but I say. Six times he'd repeat this, this phrase. You've heard it said to the people long ago, but I say. You've heard it said that a man should not commit adultery. I say lust is a sin. You've heard it said you should not murder. I say that hate is murder. You've heard it said, men, that if you just write your wife a certificate of divorce, that you're free and you're good to go with God. I say, not so fast. And over and over and over again, he'd pitch himself against the law of Moses. And his audience was sat there, and you can imagine, they're, they're not dumb, they're putting it together. Jesus, every time you say you've heard it said to the people long ago, what you're really saying is you've heard Moses said this, right? That's what you're saying. You've heard that Moses said this. Are you saying that you're better than Moses? You can't put yourself up against Moses. Moses was the lawgiver. Moses had that, that, that connection to God. Jesus, you can't put yourself in contrast with God. You can't replace the covenant maker. It was Moses that came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and the other 600 commandments. It was Moses that told us that we had this unique relationship with God, this, this covenant with Almighty God. And you're showing up and saying that somehow your law is better than his law. And so he wraps this all up with something very simple and something incredibly powerful. And we've been quoting it for 2,000 years. He knew the tension in his audience. He knew what they were feeling. He knew that they weren't completely grasping this, this new because there was torment about what was old. He says, so I, I want to wrap it up for you this way. I want to make it completely simple. We've covered a lot today, Jesus said. The Sermon on the Mount's pretty long. It covers a few chapters. We've covered a lot. Let me make it simple for you. So in everything, and I'm telling you, the, the crowd loved this. They ate this right up. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up this wraps up, this is the bottom line of the law and the prophets. And as we're going to see in a few weeks, this was the foreshadowing of the something brand new that was coming. Something that was far less complicated, but far more demanding. It was far less complicated and far more demanding. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he spoke with such authority not as the teachers of their law, not, not, not as, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rabbis in the temple. Jesus spoke with authority. And all of these, these people, the rabbis, the teachers, the Sadducees, they all now had a common enemy in Jesus because Jesus pitched himself up against them and what they had built their lives on and what they had spent their time teaching. 
And for the rest of his ministry, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, for the rest of his time on earth, they would constantly come to him. But Jesus, what about the law? And the law says, and the law says. But Jesus, what about Moses? Because Moses said, and Moses said. Jesus, what about the temple? I mean, what about the temple, Jesus? It's the temple. This is the temple that was built for us. It's the temple that Herod built for us. It's amazing. Do you know how many people travel thousands of miles to see this temple? Finally, it's almost like Jesus had enough. They had questioned, they had questioned, and then one day he turns around to confront them. Jesus, what about the temple? Jesus turns around to confront all of, all of the skeptics, all of the cynics. And you can imagine, I just imagine Jesus smiling because I just think he toyed with people because he knew everything and they didn't. He knew what it was indicating and they wouldn't. What about the temple? And he turned around and we heard this scripture last week. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus, what's greater than the temple? Have you seen the temple? Do you know how amazing that temple is? Jesus, what could be greater than the temple? I mean, the temple represents God's presence to us. It represents the covenant to us. It represents that we are the chosen nation. What could be greater than the temple? And if you're saying something is greater than the temple, then why do we need the temple? Who, really, what, why do we need the temple? And if, if there is something greater, what does that mean for the temple? What does that mean for the presence of God? What does that mean for the covenant? Jesus, I imagine, just kind of look and smile and go, just wait. Just wait. We're not far. Just a few more days, just a few more weeks, and you'll begin to understand. Now back to us. So why is this important? Really, why is this important? Why is this important to, to a 10th grade boy? Why is this important to a senior in high school who's, who's only thinking about what college they're, they're trying to get into? Why is this important for, for, for this new person who just moved into our city? Why is it important for us? Why is it important for you? Why is it important for the senior who's, who's considering retirement and what to do with their lives? Is this important? The answer is yes. And let me try to tell you how important it is. It's important because once upon a time in our country, and, I, and really this happened in the West, but we'll just deal with our country right now. Once upon a time in our country, people took the Bible seriously. They didn't read it. They just took it seriously. It was the Bible, right? They, they would have it on their coffee table or on the end table, and no one cracked it. No one knew what it said, but it was important. It, it was my mom's Bible or my grandma's Bible, and it has its place, but I have no idea what it says. Once upon a time, the Bible was important, and then the internet came around, and now we have a generation of people who have so much misinformation about Christianity, so much misinformation specifically about the Bible. And young people, teenagers, high schoolers, millennials are leaving faith in droves. And all the parents have, all we have is mom and dads. Are, well, the Bible says, and the Bible says, and the Bible says. So, so once upon a time, what I'm telling you now wasn't that important because everybody agreed the Bible said something and it was important. But today, not so much. Today, what I'm about to tell you is really important. Because what Jesus said and what the New Testament represented for 2,000 years that we continued to miss, that the church continued to miss, that we, that we didn't have this, 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 this uh, a finalization of the old and just introduce the new, we kind of had a blending of it, and we've missed, and we've missed, and we've missed. You say, you need to know this. You see, for those of you who are Christians who go to church and church is your life, you spend all your time in church and you have Christian friends and Christian neighbors and, and everything's church and you know the hymns and, and you read your Bible. For you, this isn't that important. But for those of you who have high schoolers, for those of you that have freshmen in college, 
For, for those of you who've been turned away from the church, who've been hurt by the church, for those of you who went for years and years and, and, and couldn't rationalize what happened in the old with what happened in the new, so you walked away. For those of you who care about your unsaved friends and your unsaved family, it's very important. See, what Jesus taught over and over and over again, the fact that he came to introduce something new, it really is important. Because you've heard it said, if the Bible says it, that settles it. Jesus would say that worldview, the values of Exodus to Malachi, they had a shelf life, and it came to an end. And that he came to fulfill them, to land the plane and to bring it to, to an end, and to introduce something completely brand new. And you've heard it said, well, history proved him correct, but you've heard it said, there is no conflict between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there's no conflict between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And Jesus said they're completely irreconcilable. He pulled the curtain on one, and he completely ripped the curtain in half on the other. The Old, and please don't misunderstand me with this. I know I'll be misunderstood. I'll even be misquoted. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant it was divinely created and divinely inspired. It was divinely written, and it is incredibly important. But it was a divinely written and a divinely inspired cocoon that was divinely written and was divinely scripted to introduce the love of the Father through Jesus into the world and for the world. And this divinely created and inspired document is incredibly important and holds incredible value but it has served its purpose. It has introduced that which is new, and that which is new is better and greater in every way. So although the old is important and valuable, we have moved on from the old. Jesus has closed the old. He said, I had finished it. It is finished. Those are his words on the cross. It is finished. What was old is done, and here is the new. I have done it. I have brought something different. I have, I have introduced this new covenant between God and not a nation, but between God and you and you and you and all of mankind. The old is important. The old has value. The old has history. The old shows the need for the new. But the old is just that. It's old. And Jesus said, I have come to introduce something better for you, that which is new. You've heard it said that the Bible is our guide for life. Jesus never said that. Of course, when Jesus spoke, there was no Bible. So he couldn't say the Bible was our guide for life. But, but here's what Jesus said. He said, here's what I want to be your guide. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. That's your guide for life. And this drove the Jewish religious leaders mad because he would say, you want to find life? You want to know the way? You want to know your guide for life? I am it. Now follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And then in the end, he made this unmistakably clear. And we've missed this for years and years and years. The church has missed this for years and years and years. And I can't tell you how important it is for you, parents, how important it is for you to understand this now. Jesus would teach this so many times. And if you left your, your church because you couldn't understand something in the old and how that, 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 that like compared and how it lined up with whatever was taught in the new, you need to hear this. Jesus made this unmistakably clear. Towards the end of it all, towards the end of his life, he died, he was resurrected, he gathered all of his followers together, and he gave them one last pep talk before he goes away, and I want to read it to you. He says, then Jesus came 
Matthew tells us because Matthew was there. Jesus came to them and he said this, all authority. Now, who says that? All authority. All authority. Remember when he talked? They were amazed by his teaching because he taught with authority, not like everyone else. When he went into into the temple and he caused all that chaos, he flipped over tables and he was running people out and he just created all this chaos in the temple. When the religious leaders approached him, they didn't come to him and, and say, what do you think you're doing? They came to him and said, who do you think you are? Because they'd never seen anyone in their life live and act and talk with that kind of authority. Jesus gathered all his disciples together and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when you're standing in front of the man who you saw die and he's now standing before you resurrected and you're having lunch with him and he tells you all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, you just go with it. It's like, yeah, clearly, because no one else has done this. All authority in heaven and on earth had been given to me. Not Moses, not the law and the prophets, not the Ten Commandments. It had been given to me. And here's what I'm telling you before I go away. In light of that, in light of all authority being given to me, therefore, I want you to go. <laughs> Jesus, I'd rather stay. Is it, wouldn't it just be easier if I stayed? No, no. Because all authority had been given to me and no one else, I want you to go. And I want you to take this message. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. I want you to make disciples of all nations. But Jesus, I thought it was just about the Jews and, and Jerusalem. I thought you were here to, to expel the nations and defend our borders. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's the old. The old way was to defend your borders and expel other nations. The new way is to go into the nations. Go and make disciples of them all. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to baptize them. I want you to tell them to follow me. Teach them the things that I told you and tell them to follow me. And then I want you to baptize them. And, and when, he says, when we say this, you probably have heard this phrase. My guess is you know what's coming if you've been in church. You know, you're going to baptize them in the name of da-da-da-da-da-da. Just imagine this coming from Jesus. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father. And then he says, and I, I can't even imagine this. I want you to baptize them in my name. And then they're thinking, well, what about, you know, what about Moses? What about the prophets? No, no, no. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit of God. And they were just completely awestruck at his words. Never hearing someone speak with that kind of authority and that kind of clarity. He says, after you've done this, after you've baptized them, I want you to teach them to obey everything. Everything in the Bible? No, they didn't have the Bible. Everything in the law and the prophets? No, no, no. That's old. I've come to introduce something new. Jesus, what do you want me to teach them to obey? I want you to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus, what, what have you commanded us? For that, you've got to come back to week 11. Here's the point, and then I'm done. This is what I want you to understand. A new era has begun. It was the end of something old but it was the end of something important. It was the end of something old, but it was the end of something significant. It was the end of the context the world had known, and it was the introduction of this new context that was for the entire world, that our Heavenly Father, it, it wasn't good enough for Him to make a deal with a nation. He wanted to make a deal with you. He wanted to know you personally. It was the expression of His love for you, that God loved you so much that he would send his son to conclude what was old and to introduce something brand new so that he 
could know you and you could know him. And all of their suspicions were confirmed. This isn't the same old thing. This isn't Judaism 2.0. This isn't the old commandment 2.0. This is something brand new. And here's what it means. Here's what it means for all of us. And this is why it's so important. It means that Christianity can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrected feet. That it doesn't need propping up by the old. That it doesn't need propping up by anything else. That it can stand alone on its own. Because the old has been concluded. The old has been brought to an end. The old was incredible, and it was this amazing story, and it was divinely inspired, but it had been concluded. And we can stand alone on the new because of all that Jesus had done. Because he predicted his own death and resurrection, and then he did it. And when he said, I have come to bring you the new, it stands alone. Because of Jesus and what he's done. He had come into the world to bring something to the world and for the world that it desperately needed but could not find on its own. He brought an end to the old and he introduced something brand new for you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this incredible story, for this incredible uh, message that was recorded in the Gospels, this Sermon on the Mount that is, is, God, as we read it, it just seems like it makes so much sense, but it just stands in such contrast to everything that was before it. I thank you, God, that you saw fit to love us enough, God, to bring what was old, that was a little insufficient to an end, and introduce something new that was more than sufficient and more than enough, and was good enough not just for me, but was good enough for the entire world for all of time. And I pray, God, that as we we kind of grapple with that and we wrestle with that, God, that we would bring it to a close and we would live in this new that you taught us. I pray for each person here, God, that you would give us the wisdom to see where we may have blended the old with the new and the courage to separate that, God, and live out the new that you've brought to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.